Hi, it's Tracy Crossley. Welcome to my special series, Surviving to Thriving, Overcoming My Darkest Moment, where I will interview guests on how they felt their way through a major emotional low point to create a fulfilling, abundant, and successful life. Hey guys, welcome back for another episode of Surviving to Thriving, Your Darkest Moment. Yeehaw, right? I know you guys are ready and prepared to hear about somebody else and how they not only came through their darkest moment, but what they're doing since then that has greatly improved their life or has been, let's say, the game changer. So today I have with me somebody new and his name is Andy J. Pizza. Andy? Hi. How's it going? Yeah, it's going good over here. it's, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. not currently in my darkest moment, so things are <laughs> things are great over here. Awesome, awesome. It's always good when you're not in your darkest moment when we're doing the talk. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my darkest moments right now. I got to describe the terror I'm in. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, things are good. I had a nice sandwich a little bit a little bit ago, so I'm feeling feeling great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So let me tell you guys a little bit about Andy. So Andy J. Pizza is an American illustrator, podcaster, and public speaker living and working in Columbus, Ohio. He's illustrated for the likes of New York Times, The Washington Post, YouTube, Nickelodeon, Amazon. His podcast, Creative Pep Talk, has over 4 million listens and has been featured by Apple, BuzzFeed, and Bustle. So that is awesome. So Andy, yeah, uh, when I start off, and I was telling you beforehand, I usually like to go, okay, so what was leading up to your dark moment or your many dark moments? What were some of the background things going on? And you can start anywhere with that, but go for it. Sure. Yeah. So I've had, like I, like I told you before, multiple dark moments. And, uh, but the one that I think maybe shaped me the most and was the most pivotal was something that happened when I was a teenager. And, uh, but I have to go back a little bit further to give the context for that. So I'm a creative weirdo, uh, always have been, always will be. And when you're really little, it's great to be a creative weirdo. Like if you're in kindergarten, the creative weirdo is the star pupil. If you can make super weird faces and draw cool pictures, you're like number one in the class, right? And it's pretty much all downhill from there. Uh, in the bad sort of way. Um, (laughs) You get into school and you're like, yeah, man, I'm like the king of this school. This is amazing. Um, And then every year, it's kind of like boiling a frog where they like slowly turn the heat up. And they're like, now we're not doing show and tell anymore. Now art class is only 30 minutes a week. And now there's no recess. And slowly you're like, what's happening? I used to love school. And uh, by the time I was in high school, I basically just didn't have any of the things that they seem to be valuing or looking for. Uh, You know, math, sports, traditional employment, like my part-time job I was absolutely terrible at. I would lose tons of money. Just, uh, you know, just a disaster. What's that? What was it? Yeah. I I worked at a, uh, a, a cinema and I was a cashier. And so they put me in that little cashier's box And I have ADHD, and so like 30 minutes into my eight-hour shift, I'd be like, I got to get out of here. This feels feels like a prison. And then I would be, and I would try super hard to like count the money, but there'd be all these lines and all this stuff going on. And every night, my my boss, luckily, he really liked me. uh, He would count down my drawer and be like, 
all right, you're uh, $19.56 down. Oh. He's like, we don't even take change here. What the hell does this happen? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, like, so that was like high school. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was really little, uh, I, so my mom is a creative weirdo as well. She's, she, I believe she's got ADHD. And, uh, when I was really little and I was in kindergarten, I was living it up. Like there's nobody in the world that I admired more than my mom. And the, she, you know, I just thought she was the coolest person ever. She drew Wolverine on my X-Men card collection binder and I would like bring it in and show all my friends. And, you know, all of my aunts and uncles would constantly tell me that I was just like my mom. And uh, it made me so happy because I was just like, she's the coolest person in the world. You're basically telling me I'm the coolest person in the world. Um, and the only thing I didn't love about that is that she, uh, she left me and my brother when I was really little started a new family. And so I didn't get to see her that much. Um, but I was crazy about her. And, uh, and, I, and I felt very understood by her. And so then fast forward back to college or back to high school. And uh, at that time, I got a phone call from my aunt that said that my mom was in the hospital. And it didn't really surprise me because from the time I, when I was a kid to the time I was in high school, her life kind of unraveled in multiple ways. She left that second family. She found like an abusive boyfriend who kind of took her all over the country off the grid. So we didn't really know where she was most of the time. Um, and she, I found out that she was in the hospital for an emergency surgery. And they basically told me that she had been having seizures, which none of us knew. Uh, and that she was prescribed medicine for the seizures, but she wasn't taking it because it killed her high. And so, and I was, I basically was like, okay, what high? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and I found, that's when I found out when I was about 17 that my mom was uh, addicted to crack. Um, and, you know, so they didn't know if it was the crack or they didn't know if, uh, if, what it or if it was the lack of taking the medication, but she ended up developing this giant brain tumor and she had to go into emergency surgery. So anyway, so uh, long story short, that became like those words from when I was a kid of everyone telling all the people I trusted telling me you're just like this person. That thing became went from a blessing to a curse and felt like kind of a prophetic word of doom over my life as I was like watching her go through this and thinking this is what the world does to people like me like this is what this is what my future is going to be like um and so yeah so that was my first big dark moment does that that summarize it I'll go into what happened from there but I didn't know if you no I get it because yeah. I completely shifted how you saw yourself and probably what was possible for you. In yeah. Of, oh, well, that's my future. Yikes. Yeah. And so I went to, I went to a really dark place of feeling like, uh, just, be, and then also not only that, all the people I related to uh, in my high school would, would graduate and end up basically the same. So whether it was, you know, li, you know, dead end job or, 
overdosing or wh- whatever, just t- terrible things. Every person that I related to was a failure. And I think I was petrified of becoming an adult. I'm told now that this is called Peter Pan syndrome. That was basically what I had. I was just petrified. I thought, I remember thinking like, you know, not, not to mention taxes and bills and jobs and everything. I just kept thinking things like, how do you remember to have band-aids in your house? Like that, how can you manage it to this level? Like, I don't know. Like, I was just petrified of all that. Um, and so uh, it was in this time that something really, so, so basically I looked at, out at every possible path into my future and all of them led to places that I didn't want to go. And that's a very scary experience because um, it, it's really basically saying no to life. And that is now the opposite of why I exist. I believe like now everything in my illustration, my podcast, everything is about inspiring people to say yes to life uh, in spite of the pain and suffering or because of it. Um, So there I am and I have this situation where every path looks like places I don't want to go. And this kind of seemingly inconsequential stupid thing happens where my friend Will Johnston, who's not famous, he's just a double name person. You know those people in your life where it's not just Will? It's yeah. Will Johnston. Um, he, he came into a Spanish class with this CD and he put it on the uh, boom box before class started and it was this band, Modest Mouse. And if you're not familiar, they're an indie rock band. This was like 2004. And I had just never heard anything like it. And I didn't even know if I liked it. It was kind of that kind of, you know, uh, like uh, Alice in the in the rabbit kind of moment of like I'm. I don't even know if this is if it's my thing, but I was so curious about it that I went and bought it and I just listened to it on repeat, like over and over and over again. And I started to feel like I really related to the singer. Like I, I started to notice that like the, this guy is like a real creative weirdo, but something's really different about him to me. And that's why it took me so long to latch onto it. And I realized that he, he had taken that creative weirdo, weirdness and crystallized it into a powerful, potent, creative voice, like a very real style that had a sting to it. And then not only that, they had this really rich body of merchandise. So they had like these posters and t-shirts and album artwork and all of that stuff was like heavily illustrated. And I saw myself even more in those, the people making that stuff than I did in the person in the band. And then even more than how I had seen myself in my mom. So I'd actually saw, uh, yeah, there's this moment. Are you a Harry Potter fan? I uh, know. I mean, okay. I just never watched or read. It's <laughs> totally fine. You don't have to be. I'm a reader, though. I read a lot, but I just but there's this part in Harry Potter, and if it's a, if anybody thinks this is a spoiler, you had like 20 years to read this book, so t- time's up. Um, and there's this part in that book where Harry sees this mystical figure come out of the woods and saves him from these monsters with this powerful spell. And he thinks that it's his dad, even though his dad's dead. So he's like, I think it's my dad. Later in that book, he does this time traveling magic and he goes back to see a glimpse of his dad save him. And he realizes 
that his dad's not coming. And he realizes it was himself that saved himself. And so then he performs this crazy magic. And later his friend is like, how did you know that you could perform that magic? And he's like, because I'd already seen myself do it. And so for me, these people, these illustrators making this merchandise, making this stuff, it was the first representation of a future me that was a place that I actually wanted to go. And so it was like a yellow brick road dropped out of the sky and all of a sudden I was off and I was ready to say yes. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome that you were able to see that, especially since you didn't know where you were going or what you were doing at that point. It just looked like doom and gloom, right? Very much so, yes. It, I, that was probably uh, my second to worst darkest moment. Um, uh, and, you know, do you want me to, I can keep going. We'll go to the, the, the bottom. <laughs> The true bottom, that wasn't really rock bottom. Um, That was a bedrock. Do you want me, I can keep going if you'd like, yeah. So that that, that was uh, that process. Then I thought, I'll go to school and I'll go find out how you take this creative weirdness and turn it into, crystallize it into a creative voice, right? And uh, I, so, okay. I went to school and I was very optimistic because of these band posters and this new path and everything. And I basically went there and said, how do you do what they're doing? How do you become, how do you find your style? How do you find your voice? How do you, you know, I need to do that because the people like me that are thriving are, or have done that. And I basically ran into some people who, uh, that, they kind of bought into the over mis- overly mystical creative mythology, which was like, you don't just find your voice. It finds you, man. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, no, like now I'm straight back into doom because I'm like, what am I going to do? Uh, I need, I knew, like I thought while I'm at college, that's the business. That's the work that I need to be putting in. And so I was just like petrified. I ended up coming up with, what was essentially a publicity stunt um, to try to shortcut the path. And I came up with this thing called the Indie Rock Coloring Book and it ended up getting published and it was on TV and it was covered by, you know, everything from USA Today to Ease, uh, that morning show, like on cable TV. Um, And it jump-started my career right when I got out of college. And it was so rapid that I, uh, that I basically skipped a bunch of levels right out the gate. So within like just a little over a year, I graduated college, I got married, I had a kid, we got a mortgage, and I quit my job to go full-time freelance. <laughs> so I did that, yeah. Now wait, I told you it gets dark. Right. So. I was feeling fantastic. Uh, and, but the, the, so the problem was that I skipped all these levels and I was getting opportunities that I wasn't ready for. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I got some dream opportunities and really failed. Um, and then I, 
because I just didn't know what I was doing. It was happening all too fast. And then that publicity stunt, that coloring book, uh, the press died, you know, about eight months after it was gone. And all of my jobs uh, dried up my, and for like six months, I didn't get any work. And now I'm in a worse position than I was in high school because this isn't like high school. I feel like is like dress rehearsal. This is like the real deal. And uh, I had even tasted my dreams. And then now I, I went six months, no work. Now I've got a house, a kid, a wife, no job, no prospects. And this is my true darkest moment. So this is where I spent a lot of time laying face down on the living room floor and trying to use sleep as self-medication to just like escape. Uh, I'm really good at falling asleep. It's one of my best, uh, <laughs> that's one of my biggest strengths. I can do it kind of anywhere, any place, anytime. And uh, I would just force myself to shut down. Um, I ended up getting a job. I ended up legitimately quitting uh, the illustration thing and the creative game and all that. And I got a job at a youth shelter. And uh, that was the only job I could get that wasn't minimum wage, but it was connected to a juvenile detention center. So I had to work shifts on that too. And it was just, you know, it's not that the job was so terrible. It's just that the, the listeners can't see me, but I'm like a squishy, creative emo guy. And, uh, you know, every other person that worked there were like giant burly people. And like the, the people that were in this juvenile detention center were only like three or four years younger than me and also like pretty hardcore. And uh, they would just chew me up and spit me out. So I, I, I was in a place where basically I'd had all of my hopes and dreams within reach and crashed and burned and truly gave up. And that was, yeah, that was kind of my story after college. Um, How long did that last for? And also, did that bring you back to believing, you know, when you were, you found out about your mom and what she was doing, you know, and you got into this whole, oh my God, everybody like me fails. So was that playing into it and all of that as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, it was worse than that because it wasn't just, it wasn't just like, you know, my suspicions were true. It was also, I was humiliated because everybody, all of my high school friends and all of my, and my family had like watched me go on this little journey where I kind of rose really fast and then just kind of crashed and burned. And I think I felt like, you know, I think there's this thing where people play it safe because they can kind of say, oh, well, I never really tried, but I had tried <laughs> and I, I had really went for it and got my butt handed to me and basically just felt like, well, that was, that's pretty much it. Like that's that now I have to figure out how to start a new career doing something I know I'm not going to be good at. And, and uh, yeah, so that, that's why I think it was truly uh, dark at that point. And how long were you there? Like how long did you work there? So I worked at that, um, that, that period of time probably lasted a year. 
Uh, I worked maybe a little bit longer than that, but I worked at that youth shelter for about nine months. Um, and yeah, so that it was, a, I think that that was an extremely formative period of my, t- of my life. I think that who I became was, yeah, very determined by that struggle. I think it was a, it was a crystallization of that's where my mental toughness came from. Uh, I think that even now I feel like I carry around some of it as a burden in terms of fear of ever having to go back in that place, which in part, some of that's good. Some of that's not so good. Um, But yeah, that's about how long it lasted. What kind of impact did that have on your marriage at that time? Because you're newly married and here you are, oh, wow, this is great. Oh, wow, shit, here I am. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, we were definitely struggling. And, you know, I think it's a testament to my wife, Sophie, in that, you know, I think she really values me for who I am and not what I can do, luckily. You know, one of the things that people find really funny, you know, a big part of my career now is the podcast, and Sophie's only listened to maybe like, I, there's like over 200 episodes of, of Creative Pep Talk. And uh, Sophie's listened to like two episodes. And even even that, you know, she wasn't thrilled about listening to them then. And I think some people can see that as like, oh, she's not even interested in what you do. And the truth is what she's really interested in is just spending time with me. She just likes me, not for what I can produce, not what, you know. So I think it's interesting because I could see a lot of other situations going really sour. We argued a lot. We were panicking about money and paying the mortgage and all kinds. It was, it was definitely, it was not, you know, rosy and rainbows and all that stuff. But at the same time, you know, she got a job at the hospital. She, she was planning to be a stay-at-home mom. But when, when that wasn't working, she went and got a job as a nurse assistant. And we were both in the trenches together. And honestly, in the same way that that period formed me and crystallized me, I think it really crystallized our marriage because, um, yeah, I think once you've kind of been in the trenches together and and buckled down and and seen some stuff, uh, I think that it's pretty, it's it's a really strong foundation that you live with forever. Right. So then that lasted for a year. You were at that job nine months. Obviously, something must have changed that you didn't decide to keep doing that and perhaps you were getting back to your creativity. So what is it? Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of pieces to this, but I'll just tell you kind of what happened. I, I, I ended up feeling like this isn't like this path that I'm on now is not going to turn into anything. It's not going to go anywhere. I'm not going to be able to, like, even though I was working, um, I wasn't able to make, I was still having bills pile up. Um, and I was trying to figure out how I'm going to, how I'm going to survive. And I think I ended up, I ended up finding mentors in my life that I saw were doing things that, I basically, I met a a friend named uh, Andrew, same name. Maybe that's why I saw myself in him. I don't know. Um, I'm that silly. Uh, But I realized, and I met a bunch of people that had 
not skipped all the, the hard work of finding your voice. And I started to be inspired by that and realized that, um, realized that I hadn't ever really given it a true shot, that I'd actually tried to just skip the whole thing. Uh, and so I think I started to put in the time and energy to put in my 10,000 hours or so to, or, or whatever the right way and just kind of do whatever the opposite of a publicity stunt is. And uh, I, I just started this daily project where it was all leading with my taste. So the other thing that happened was, and I'll just kind of have to ruminate on this for a second. Um, I... I realized that the, in that dark place, I knew that I had to go deeper within myself of who I really am. I realized that you know some of the indie music stuff and some of the art crowd, art school stuff were a persona that, were, that was hiding who I really was. And I started to ask myself like deeper questions about the art that I wanted to make and I started to lead with, rather than leading with what was trendy or what was, you know, cool in other people's eyes, I started to try to tap into my true taste, meaning what are, what's the art that hits me on a visceral level that I can't deny and I can't, I couldn't even try to like it or try to not like it. It just resonates within me. And so I started to, I wanted to create, instead of trying to think of what does the world want me to do? What's the fastest way to get notoriety? I started to ask myself, what really means something to me? And so I, I, and I, I use this process that I run through with other people now. I call it the six-year-old tattoo test. And it's just basically this idea that when you go to get a tattoo, you know, a lot of people are worried about getting something they're not going to like in 50 years. And I said, the easiest way to avoid that is to get a tattoo that your six-year-old self would have thought was amazing, that you also think is amazing. Like, it doesn't have to be like Kermit the Frog, but just something that if your six-year-old self saw it would be like, that's badass. Like, you know, and if you feel that way and six-year-old you feels that way, 90-year-old you is probably going to feel that way. It's speaking to something about your essence. You know what I mean? Yes. And so in that like dark moment, I feel like I, I, it, kind, it has this uh, pruning effect where all the unnecessary stuff gets cut away, right? And you're like pruning the branches and you're cutting back all the garbage and it, and it has, it's a refining, it's like a refining of a diamond where you're, you're putting it through all this pressure and all this uh, intensity. And, and I think through that, I got real about who am I really? So I, so I started going back to even when, as far as I could remember, uh, the artwork that had a visceral impact on me. And it was things like Jim Henson. It was things like... Uh, Moomin and Hayao Miyazaki, those are a little bit more niche than Jim Henson, but they were the things that mattered to me. And then like even like uh, really sad kid stuff, which also doesn't exist that much anymore, which is kind of why I exist, I think, is to make sad kid stuff. Um, but uh, uh, things like Charlie Brown Christmas about this little depressed kid. I love this, the peanuts. Oh, me too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
there's not a lot of kid stuff that talks about depressed seasonal depression and you know it had this like amazing sad jazz soundtrack that when i was a kid you know with my mom leaving and all that i think i was hungry for narratives that said that my sadness was okay and so why i remember watching these things and things like fraggle rock did the same thing and just feeling so seen and so I made this giant folder on my computer. This was before Pinterest, but it was essentially Pinterest board of all these things that just deeply connected to my true taste. And I started to kind of connect the dots between them and say, what are the patterns between the timeless uh, influence that I ha- influences that I have and the, and the timely influences? What are the things, what's the thing that Jim Henson's doing that Pixar's doing? You know, what are the things in between those? And I created this kind of master list. This is something I get my uh, students or listeners to do. Um, there was a guy called Dieter Ram- I'm going, I'm rambling like a maniac. So you just stop me if you're like, whoa, Andy, you're going off on the wrong road. Um, but I have them do this thing. Like great artists throughout time have done this. Sister Corita Kent, who is this like crazy screen printing nun. She was amazing. Anybody listening should go listen, go check her out. She was amazing. She had these like 12 class rules. And it was like, this is my definition of my taste. And the same goes for like Dieter Rams, who was the uh, head of Braun uh, product design back in the day. And all the Apple products that we have today are influenced by his stuff. And he had, these are my 10 rules of design. And so I kind of intuitively was doing the same thing by tapping into my real taste, recognizing the patterns in what seemed like static, and then creating this kind of master rule set. And then I used that to start this daily project that I called Nod, where I did a new character every weekday for a year and I named them. And it was, it was really like, um, it was a kid's art project that had a lot of depth of emotion, a lot of depth of philosophy, a lot of depth of feeling. And uh, yeah, so that, that's what I ended up doing. I don't know if you have any questions or anything that you want to well, I, I can get to where that kind of took me to. Well, and that's, you know, the interesting thing I think for everybody listening, whether they're a creative or not, is that the stumbling block for most people is they're going too far outside of themselves to try and figure out what it is they should be doing. Yeah. Or they are. And I hear that a lot from people. And I'm always like, you just have to keep taking these steps toward what you actually love doing. Like, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily that's what you're going to do, but that's what's going to help you to get there because you have to be open to it. So it sounds like that's pretty much what your process was by recognizing, okay, I get off on this. Cool. Yes. And I'll tell you, that reminds me of, uh, there's a quote from the comedian Ron Funches. I believe that he talks about this. It's either on Conan O'Brien's podcast or it's on a, a Vulture's podcast. Good one. And he talks about how this really reframed influences for me. And he said that, you know, your true influences are the ones that tell you something about yourself that you didn't know. And I think a lot of times our influences are people that we're jealous of or people that maybe have something that we don't have. And they're really big distractions because it gets us obsessed with our weaknesses and obsessed with wanting things that are not true to us. And so I do think like, you, I, I'm a big believer in also that like, you know, in the hero's journey, the hero really is born the minute 
that they disobey their uh, their hero. So like Luke Skywalker doesn't become a Jedi until he disobeys Yoda and says, I'm going to save Leia and Han now, even though Yoda's like, no, you have to complete your training. And he's like, no, I'm, that's when he becomes a man. That's when he becomes a hero. And the same, you know, so there's this, there's this, uh, I think you, I think there is use for influences in terms of, and I, and I don't mean this in creativity. I think all of this, this, uh, this idea of tapping into your own taste, just to go, just to go back to what you were saying about how, this does not a, this is not a creative idea. This is actually an idea that I believe is the secret of the universe and it's not because I thought of it, but you've heard of the golden rule, right? Which is do unto others as you want done to yourself. And that's really what taste is. If you're a chef, you wanna make a dish that tastes delicious to you. And the same goes for when, if you're a doctor, what, what uh, doctor's office do you go into and how do they treat you and what do they do to make you feel special and loved and safe and cared for, that's your job to go out there and go do that to other people. And I think that the thing about that is it says something about, you, you know, I think about uh, your power is not what you can do, but it's how you receive things. So it's your, the sensitivity of your palate. So if you have a really sensitive palate for certain types of flavors, you're able to reverse engineer the recipe and add to it what's missing. And that's true for cooking, but that's also true for medical profession. It's also true for accountants. It's true for anybody. If you know what are you really, your only real true north is what makes you feel loved, what makes you feel safe, what all those things. And then you get to use that super sensitivity to go out and do unto others what's, uh, what you want to be done for you. And I hope no one hears that as overly religious. It doesn't come from a religious place. I think it's just a, a universal truth. Um, I agree but yeah. with you on that. I absolutely do. And I believe in doing the most authentic things in life are what actually bring you the happiness. And I believe that's what you're saying because yeah. you, you have to be authentic in it because if you're trying to be someone else or something else, you're never going to feel fulfilled and that's going to come across in what you do. It's like you want to have a passion for it an excitement, a feeling of alive, you know, and a lot of people I talk to are like, well, I'm here to help people, but I don't know how. And, and it's very clear that it's already inside of them, but they mm -hmm. just don't see it. Yes. So, so let's, you know, move on a little bit to, so what happens? You discovered all these things about yourself. So how did that affect your career? Or how did that actually start to build your career? Yeah. So uh, I started putting these daily things out and uh, you know, it started at first, you know, some of the people, my friends online were kind of excited about it, but uh, eventually it, it became crickets. We're like, nobody's really interested in this but me. And, uh, you know, I just kept going because I, I, you know, unlike the coloring book, I wasn't doing it to be seen. You know, I was really doing it to see. I was doing it to understand myself and, and kind of crystallize who I was. And so I kept going anyway. And it wasn't until like day 100 that a blog picked it up. And a blog picked it up and I started to get a few illustration jobs again. And it wasn't anything I could quit my job over, but it was like breadcrumbs, right? Um, and so, you know, eventually 200 days in, uh, Tumblr features it. That turns into a few other opportunities. And over time, I develop the style that I'm working in now, 
and the voice that I'm working in now. And actually, it all just kind of, there wasn't, there wasn't any giant inflection moment. It, eventually, I had worked up enough and hustled and diversified my income enough to where I could quit that job. You know, and, and uh, you know, I picked up teaching for a while and I just kept kind of slowly exploring my own voice, continually reaching out to people. And it, you know, it wasn't overnight. It was nothing like the coloring book. Um, it was just a slow but sure putting in my time, growing and making stuff. Um, and so that, yeah, over, you know, about five years, I built up a, a good income and, uh, and created a, a world in which I could be a full-time illustrator again. Um, does that make sense? It does. And what's so funny, because I relate to this totally, when I started uh, coaching, which was 11 years ago, it took yeah. years to find my groove. And one of the things that I did was I started putting out blog posts about what my internal struggles were. Mm. And so my whole point is, it's interesting when you tr start to step into the journey, you know, like mm -hmm. you're really in the journey and you're allowing yourself to go there. It's to me, it's always, it, it's still kind of surprising how things will come to you so much easier. And, 100%. you know, and it's so much more fulfilling because you feel like you're connected to it. Yes. That's what it sounds like for you. There's a, uh, there's an idea from Joseph Campbell and Hero's Journey and all that stuff that really explains this process to me. And he just says that, you know, if you're, if you're waiting to go on the road that leads to the dragon, or if you're waiting for the point when you're going to be ready to slay that dragon, you're going to be waiting forever because it's the road that makes you ready. And so it's the same for me is that there's a real like, a growth mindset kind of thing coming through where it's, I realize, like, here's another way of saying it. So a lot of people think that, you know, they get into this fixed mindset with creativity and they think it's all about some kind of innate talent or X factor. And they think uh, when they feel like they have it, they put in the time. But the truth is most of the time you're getting beat up by the road and most of the time you don't feel like you have it. And so as, as soon as you feel like, oh, as soon as you question whether you have it or not, you quit putting in the work. But the problem is having it comes from putting in the work. So, it's, yeah, so there's this like weird catch-22 thing. So I think that for me, the thing I go and speak about and I tell you know, even more parts of my story and whatever in my public speaking, um, like, uh, like I'm going to do a tour later this year where I'm going to tell the story sequentially, but, um, that that's the big takeaway for me is that there's this real pervasive fixed mindset in creativity. Are you familiar with that terminology, Dr. Carol Dweck and mindset? I am familiar with it. Yeah. That to me, that my podcast is mostly about how can we, uh, deconstruct this toxic creative mythology that says that creativity and, and great work and great artists come from these geniuses that have this supernatural, uh, you know, allotment of the magic talent. Uh, and and, and kind of just say like, forget all that crap, take, take that all down and realize that it's about, you know, leading with your visceral taste and then leading that way down the journey, putting in the time, learning as you go, not just keep on swimming, but I would say keep on pivoting. So use yeah. everything you're doing as an experiment. 
And I agree with that 100%. And I'm always telling people to do that as well. I mean, I use different language, but it's, sure. it's the same thing because you don't know until you're having the experience and then you still don't know and you can't be attached to an outcome of what you think it's going to look like or what it should look like because that actually takes you off your journey. I mean, yeah. everything is part of the journey, but as more of a straight line in the journey, mm. you know? it makes you take a right turn or a left turn when you don't need to. Yeah. And that, uh, the way that I talk about that is this idea of like, you know, you're saying that you won't know until you try it. You won't know until you get out there on the road, you know, in marketing, they call this, it's, I don't, I think they make it overly complicated. This is from, I mean, I'm not trying to diss this person. Ryan Holiday has this book called Growth Hacker Marketing. It's one of my favorite books. It's the best book on marketing I've ever read. Um, and he has this idea, uh, or he writes about this idea called MVP to PMF. So it's minimal viable product to product market fit. Now, I think that's an ex excellent description of what he's talking about, but I think for a lot of people, that sounds overly technical or something, or, or it's kind of confusing and they get lost in the weeds. But essentially, minimal viable product is, what's the most basic version of the thing you wanna do? Get it out there to test it, and then once you've tested it, take it back to the lab. And if you keep doing that, you'll get what he calls PMF, which is product market fit, where your authentic offering yeah. meets a resonance in the audience. And I call that, just because I think, every time I ever say MVP to PMF uh, to any creative person, they just get like glazed eyes. We're like, I can't, what are you talking about? And I found the exact equivalent in creativity, and it's what stand-up comedians call writing on stage. And it's basically, you know, we see this special from comedians. That's most of what, if you're not a crazy comedy fan, that's pretty much the most stand-up comedy you're ever going to consume is this polished, pitch-perfect, word-for-word uh, stand-up special. Right. And the thing is, it seems like they're doing this crazy work, typing out word-for-word, -word, writing like crazy, you know, meticulous crafting. The truth is most of those comedians never write a word down on a page and they do what's called writing on stage. It's the same thing as this MVP PMF thing where they're going to the clubs in impromptu places. They're not taking this giant hunch and saying, I'm gonna record a special. They're saying, here's a bunch of little feelings I have with my taste. I'm gonna take it to the club. I'm gonna make and learn at the same time. So I'm gonna be making this stuff and seeing how does this hit the audience that I wanna connect with. And there, it's a, becomes this giant ongoing experiment. And the only way you get to be ready to perform the special is to go and trying it and getting it on stage. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. I mean, yeah. I can relate to that in what I do. So before we wrap it up, there's two sure. things. One, what did happen to your mom with the brain tumor and all of that? And I meant to ask you that earlier. Yeah. Um, and then is there any parting words or, or things that you want to offer to the audience listening that you feel would be relevant to their journey? Sure. So I'll tell you about my mom. Uh, so she ended up uh, kind of successfully going through that surgery. Um, I think it impacted her. Like in the short term, it was a little bit more intense. Uh, but in the long term, it mainly just took off her filter. So she's kind of someone who will just say everything she th thinks now, which is kind of outrageous. But, um, but it also means she can't get in too much trouble because she can't like 
work her way out of a corner anymore because she just says everything she thinks. Um, but, you know, it, her, her life didn't really turn around. That's the truth. And, uh, you know, I think that the, that's the bad news of it. The good news is I look back and I think about how that experience growing up with the mom that I treasured like that, who kind of just devastated me as a kid, the whole time it felt really like a, someone like digging a hole into my heart. And I think now that I have this podcast where I'm so passionate and driven to help creative people thrive, uh, I realized that it wasn't a hole that was dug, but a well. So it's a well, uh, that is where, that is the capacity I have for passion. That's why the first illustration job I got, I instantly wanted to write a blog post. I instantly wanted to tell people, this is how you do this. Because I instantly wanted to turn around down the mountain and say, let me tell, let me tell how other people, how I got here, right? And so that pain and that hurt and the heartbreak ended up being where this natural, uh, everlasting obsession with make, you know, I keep, I always think like, you know, would my mom have been the same had she had my podcast? Uh, I don't know. Who, who knows? There's, there's no way for me to know. Um, but I like to think that I'm uh, doing everything I can to enable people to, creative people to live their best lives. And I've realized that when people don't take that call seriously, when they leave, you know, Stephen Pressfield says that we live two different lives, you know, the life we live and the unlived we live that dies inside of us. And I think when we, we think that not being courageous on that, not taking action on that, that the only person we're hurting is us, when the truth is your life just has this everlasting ripple effect. And, that, and it's not just my mom. My mom's decisions didn't hurt a decision to, you know, be a uh, crack addict didn't just affect me. It affects my wife. She's missing this role in her life. They would have connected in this amazing way. It affects my kids and it, it just keeps going. And she, she sees it as, oh, I didn't follow my dreams or I didn't pursue my passion. I didn't pursue my fame. And, but it, and who cares? That was my choice to make. But the truth is, you know, you don't know the impact that you have on other people. And, and in the same way, the people that were making stupid band posters in 2004 saved a high school kid's life. And they, they only know that because I went and told them, but you have no idea how inconsequential your passion and purpose might feel and the kind of impact that it has on people you don't even know, right? And so, and, and all they were doing was living into their thing. It, them making modest mouse posters, never in a million years did they think, yeah, this is going to have a positive impact on the world. Um, but it took me from uh, the darkest place in my life to all this, all of a sudden illuminating this beautiful path that made me want to say yes to life. And so that's, that's what I've become all about, whether I'm illustrating, whether I'm podcasting, whether I'm speaking on stage, everything I'm doing is I'm trying to figure out what's the recipe, uh, what's the ingredients to the type of creativity that inspires people to say yes to their future. Um, and that's, that's everything that I do. Is that, I think maybe I answered both questions at the same time. I'm you absolutely sure. did. Um, okay. I think that those are great words of advice because they're doable. They're doable. Yeah. Anybody, no matter what it is that they are thinking they want to do, it doesn't, because I think of life as a creative pursuit anyway. Mm. Yeah, you know? me too. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think that when people can take creativity, meaning I'm going to creatively build my life rather than I'm just going to sit and, you know, see what happens. I think that that makes all the difference. And I think what you're speaking to is living the life that's unlived as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say real quick, uh, one of the things I say a lot on my podcast, and I have a lot of people, my podcast kind of started five years ago as an illustration podcast. Then it became a creative career podcast. And now I often say that my real passion isn't just to help uh, people build thriving creative careers, but to help people thrive approaching career in a creative way. You know, I think the industrial revolution and corporations, all, you know, a lot of that, we got a lot of benefits from that. But I think one of the things that it cost us was our own autonomy, our own belief in, uh, I can build my world. I can take care of myself. I can, I can be the hero of my own journey and approach my career creatively, right? And so that, you know, if you're, even if you're not a creative, I recommend checking the show out because that, my real passion is if you don't fit into the mold that you are given, if you don't, if you're, uh, if you're not going to fit successfully into the typical nine to five, that there's a really creative way of owning your own future and building your own thing and piecemealing whatever you need to put together to, I always say like, you know, we think of you we're like round pegs going into these square holes and it doesn't quite fit. And I always say like, you're not even a round peg. You're like a half sphere triangular rhombus you, there's no hole out there. There's no job you're going to find. It's the perfect job. It's your wildest dreams. No, you, you don't have to fit yourself into the universe. You make the universe fit into you. You make a, you make a, you carve out a space that's perfect for you and you custom build it. And that's what my podcast is about. So I think we're definitely on the same page there. Absolutely. And I'm actually thinking of people that I'm going to tell about your podcast too. Yeah, that's great. They already fit into that mold. So yeah. I have loved our conversation today. This has been awesome. I wish you could Me too. on. So thank you. Uh, amazing questions. I love what you're doing. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I'm so passionate about and I love that you're doing this work is, you know, with Instagram culture, online culture and persona, influencers, personal brand, all that stuff, everything in our life is begging us to be pristine, whitewashed, uh, when inside we might be dying or inside we might be going through the darkest moments. And I just love that you're just highlighting this stuff because the internet needs more of it, needs more of the truth uh, so that all those people know that they're not alone. So thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Absolutely, absolutely. It sounds like we're both out there doing what we love. So absolutely, this yes. Is good. All right, Andy, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Yeah, and everybody listening, you guys, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll be seeing you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.